come to verse 1 of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. Pilate heard this statement. He was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. That was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Thankful this morning for God's word. May it accomplish what it sets forth to do. Our title comes from these two striking phrases from Pilate. Behold the man, behold your king. Simultaneously true, accurate, and yet at the same time completely misunderstood are the words of Pilate from his own mouth. If you have a bulletin, you can see a sermon outline in there that may be of help to you as we go through God's word this morning. I typically divide the sermon up into four sections, and this first one being the call, something that God's word calls us to out of this passage. And it seems it could be none other than to behold the mystery of Jesus' condemnation, the man condemned and the king constrained. So you saw Pilate's two exhortations to the crowds, yes? Behold the man, behold your king. This perhaps might recall to you the mystery of the incarnation. That is Jesus coming to the world and taking on flesh and dwelling among us as John chapter 1 tells us. And you may be thinking again, why are we going to John chapter 1 yet again? We are because John's 
way of laying out his book at the very beginning is so telling for us and so helpful as we consider and as we continue on through it. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, he says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What do you mean, John? Jesus is this light that has shone in the world? And we've seen for many chapters, many stories of Jesus shining that light and of people responding with faith, people having their lives absolutely transformed. And then John says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What could a disciple of Jesus be thinking right now in John 19 except that the light has been overcome? The crowds, the priests, and Pilate himself have all decided that Jesus is worthy of death. That this is the only thing that they can do with he who was in the beginning with God and who was himself very God as well. Verses 9 through 11 of John's first chapter. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's fascinating to consider that he was not received by his people in the beginning of this book, and if you don't know what happens in the end, you might just be thinking that they might have turned him away, that they might have simply said, we just don't want anything to do with you. Go about your business, and we'll go about ours. But it is telling for us that if, we, if our job this morning is to behold the mystery of Jesus' condemnation, that we need to see that there's no way of us responding in a gray or neutral way, a gray area or a neutral stance before Jesus. The light shines in the darkness. It cannot be overcome by it. And yet those that were even waiting and looking for him did not receive him largely. Rather, they crucified him. Verse 14 of chapter 1, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only, as only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, we might ask John, what is this glory? There is no glory in John 19 that we can see with worldly perspective, is there? There is only humiliation and shame. There is only anger and desperation. There is no glory in this. The glory is to come later on. This is also in line with the message of John the Baptist. And he says in the first chapter, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's fascinating that John the Gospel writer and John the Baptist set us up in such a way as to see that glory is coming, that Jesus is the light of the world, and that he also must first become a lamb and take our place. Did you notice that John... In verse 14, is very particular to point out, it was the day of preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. John's goal is for you to behold the lamb in this passage. To add to Pilate's exhortation of beholding the king, beholding the man, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is not an accident that while all of God's people were preparing for the Passover, preparing to offer a sacrificial lamb that would absorb the wrath of God on their behalf symbolically, that the true lamb of God was also being prepared. We 
can look back at chapter 19 now. Consider in these first three verses, the man humiliated and the king mocked. It's striking that the beginning of our chapter this morning has Pilate, has Pilate taking Jesus and flogging him. And if you're unsure, and boy, what a great day for there to be no junior worship, right? If you're unsure what flogging is, this is a type of torture that the Romans were perfect at. The, the Roman Empire, probably more than any other empire in all of history, really got torture down very well in the sense of they knew how to make their enemies suffer. They knew how to carry the threat of something. I mean, even the cross, Jesus was not the only one who ever died on a cross. There were thousands of criminals that would have died on the cross. And the symbol of a man hanging outside of the city, dying on a cross, would have always been a reminder that Rome is in charge and do not cross them. Flogging was something that would have been done in preparation for something like Crucifixion, but it also would have been done for a various range of crimes. There were actually three different kinds of floggings, and they all have these Latin words that I'm going to try really hard at getting right. But the first level was fustigatio, which was used for just minor misdemeanors. Somebody might have stolen a loaf of bread. Somebody might have said something cruel, might have attacked briefly another person. A person might have received this first level of flogging to be corrected and to receive a lesson. The second level, which was flagellatio, was a more serious um, use of the whip with more sharp objects added into the... This is a good thing for you to research later on rather than to um, spell out perhaps for all the extra children we have this morning. But that second one was not the ultimate form of flogging. There was the third level, which was called the verberatio, which was reserved only for those who were worthy of death. Now, it's interesting because Pilate is noted here before the condemnation of Jesus as flogging Jesus. And if we read the rest of the Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, they mention a flogging that happens after the condemnation, after Pilate washes his hands and sends him away to be crucified. So if we put these two things together, it's not a contradiction. It actually flows very well. It perfectly makes sense because Pilate's goal right now is to dismiss Jesus. If you remember, the king, the true king, we looked at two weeks ago in the last passage. We saw that the groups of people around him were either trying to distort the truth or dismiss the truth or totally just disenfranchise the truth, take it all apart if they possibly could. Pilate's goal was to dismiss the truth, was to try to get somebody else to deal with it. He's convicted in this passage, of course. He realizes Jesus is perfectly innocent. He has a little twinge of conviction that he ought to do something to make these things right and to, to free Jesus. So flogging him made perfect sense in Pilate's mind. It would have made perfect sense that the fustigatio, the minor misdemeanor form of flogging, would have been a perfect way to punish Jesus for whatever these Jews said he did wrong. And then also to present him to the Jews and say, look, behold the man. He's barely a man anymore. He's been beaten. He's been ridiculed and mocked. A crown of thorns has been placed upon his head. You know, we, we often see these images of thorns, and I tried to find a good one that had longer spikes because the spikes that were used on this crown of thorns, they could have, they, they weren't little half inch, little tiny pokey <laughs> type things, but rather they could have been upwards of 12 inches long that were formed into a crown and placed on his head. Of course, you may know also that this color purple, the color of royalty, was put on him as well in the form of a, 
Right, so here, he twisted the, the crown of thorns together and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe in verse 2, mocking him as the king that he claimed to be. The people accused him of being. Pilate then sends Jesus out humiliated and mocked, hoping to just set aside the, these troublesome Jews and let them get on with their day so that he can get on to more important things. Verses 4 through 7, we see Jesus, the man rejected, and the king denounced. Pilate brings him to them. Behold the man, he says in verse 5. But the chief priests and the officers saw him. They cried out, crucify him. It wasn't enough to go the first level of flogging with Jesus. They wanted to see him dead. They wanted to see him humiliated. They wanted everyone to know that he had been rejected and his kinghood denounced. In verse 7, they cry out that they have a law, and that according to that law, this man ought to die. Likely, they're talking about Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, if you're curious. And that has reference to blaspheming the name of God. Jesus was accused of this. If you remember back to John chapter 8, he was accused of blasphemy when asked about who he was and whether he was older than Abraham. And Jesus' answer in verse 58 was, surely I say to you, before Abraham was, do you remember? I am. They accused him of blasphemy at that point for taking on that sacred name upon himself. They've rejected him and denounced him. In verses 8 through 11, the man, Jesus, is then exhorted. Pilate gives him a way out. Do you realize that I have authority here? Why don't you work with me in this matter? Maybe there's something you could say that would calm down the Jews and would let them know that you're not serious about this kinghood thing or being the son of God or whatever your problem with the Jews might be, Pilate says. He says, don't you understand? I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you. And Jesus' words, his only words in our section this morning, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above can kind of imagine that at that point, verse 12, Pilate did seek to release him at that point because he was convicted about the innocence of Christ, but he wasn't convicted about the lordship of Christ. He wasn't truly beholding the mystery of what Jesus was there to do, that he was indeed the true king. Pilate was afraid. He was afraid that perhaps he was doing something wrong to a holy man, but at this point, he just wants to say, my goodness, it sounds like you want to be crucified trying to help you here, Jesus. The king remains steadfast. Pilate's fear, his plea, and his frustration have no effect on the mission that Christ has come to fulfill. Lastly, in verses 12 through 16, we see the man captive and the king despised. Pilate's determination to free Jesus is completely overcome by his fear of the crowds. Did you see the words that most struck Pilate? If you release this man... You are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, Pilate had a very good reason for fearing this because his mentor, who most likely got him into this governor position with um, Tiberius Caesar at the time, was called the friend of Caesar. And that friend of Caesar was also executed by Caesar because Tiberius was a very paranoid Caesar, as most of the Caesars really were. 
So even those who might have carried that title for a time, it's not a guarantee. So Pilate's only hope is to maintain this and to hope that no one sends a message to Caesar, the wrong person tells the wrong person, and then eventually Tiberius says, wow, you know what, Pilate isn't really doing a very good job out there anyway. Pilate's faced with the reality that he has to either save his own life or save Jesus's. His determination to free Jesus is completely overcome by his fear of losing his own life. In Jesus' condemnation before Pilate, we also must behold the mystery of divine authority. See, Jesus doesn't say in response to Pilate's claim to authority, oh, yeah, that's right, you are in charge. Maybe you could help me out here. No, he knows he's there to do his Father's will, the one who truly holds authority. God's prevailing plan over man's sinister subjugation is not going to be changed. Pilate may think that he's in charge of this, for a time. And then the crowds might think that they're in charge of it for a time. Because Pilate's authority obviously crumbles before an angry crowd. But perhaps what we need to consider this morning and the conflict of our own hearts as well is that we ought to face the conflicting desires of our human and fallen hearts as we behold our king. Because Pilate had conflicting desires, didn't he? He wanted to release him. But when just the right thing was said by somebody, not just somebody, but by a whole group of people, that whole desire to free the innocent, to act justly, to do the right thing, went completely out the window when Pilate's life was at stake. Last time when we looked at John 18, we saw how Pilate's authority was at stake and how his position was at stake. And certainly he would want to be guarding and shoring up his governor position in Jerusalem. And yet... He crumbles when his life is in danger. He, in fact, is beholding Jesus. He had a very striking conversation with him in John chapter 18. He asks him questions. Verse 35, he says, Am I a Jew? I don't know anything about this. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me, so what have you done? Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might, be deliver- not, might not be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not from this world. Pilate then says, so are you a king? Jesus says, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate had such a great opportunity to respond to that beholding of the true king, to ask him the same question that he really uses to dismiss Jesus. In verse 38 of chapter 18, Pilate said to him, what is truth? Immediately afterwards, then, he goes back outside and talks to the Jews. He doesn't wait and linger on that very important question that he has that perhaps could have unlocked in his own heart a true view of the man and the king, the lamb of God. So how does your heart respond when you behold your king through the scriptures? I know for me, a lot of times as I wake up early in the morning, it's still a struggle to be able to get my eyes open enough to put them on God's word. To truly then behold Jesus seems such a monumental task to start your day off with, right? Or really at any point in the day. There's so many distractions. There's so many responsibilities. There's so many things that our hearts long to do. So how do we respond when we see Christ for who he is? How's your heart responding even right now as you're putting your eyes on God's word and considering these things? Do they matter to you? Are they of the utmost importance? 
See, we cannot respond with neutrality in beholding Christ. Pilate shows us that very clearly. We will either respond in hostility or in homage. It's only one or the other. We cannot simply say, I like Jesus for who he is, but I like Jesus where he is. And I'd like to keep a good distance between me and him. There is no such thing as a distance between us and God. That is because we will either meet him in faith or reject him in our sin. This is what is just perfectly illustrated for us. The crowds here, they have the very word of God made flesh before them to behold. And they're even being told by someone who knows nothing of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament to behold your king. And they miss it. And they don't only miss it and dismiss it, but they actually condemn him entirely. Let's consider Pilate again, because his doom is on the table here. Again, chapter 18, it may have just been that his job was on the table, but now his very life is at stake. And I wonder if we put ourselves in Pilate's place, if we would also protect not only our position, but our very life. See, Jesus has already spoken something that would be very pointed for Pilate to receive in John 12. He, wrote, he said, rather, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The way that that is determined is through the beholding of the Son of God. You will behold God, and you will know at the place of your heart whether you love your life to the end or not. How much your life truly means to you. Because you could see him for who he is in the scriptures. You could see his work clearly in creation. You can see the evidence of his transforming power in the lives of other people. But if you love your life too much, you're going to dismiss and reject the truth. In verse 26 of chapter 12, he said, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. Remember what happened to his servants, to his closest friends, his disciples. The scripture in Zechariah was fulfilled. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. What humiliation in this world do you fear? Are you prepared to follow Christ even to a cross? It's getting harder and harder to follow Jesus today and to get a thumbs up from the rest of the world around us. It's not going to get any easier, church. It's important for us to consider these things this morning. We have Pilate's doom to consider. And we also have, in a terrifying way, the chief priest's sort of anti-confession. If you look back towards the end of our passage here in verse 15, in response to behold your king, they cry out away with him, crucify him. Pilate asks, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answer, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priests, church, they know their Bibles better than any of us. And they were so hardened in their hearts in beholding the king that they could even say, we have no king but Caesar. That might sound like a fluffy thing to say to Pilate to just butter him up. But what it truly is is that at the place of their hearts, they have rejected the king appointed by God. And even if they had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they, in, in these words that are so carelessly tossed out, reveal that God himself, whom they claim to worship and serve, is not their true king. But Caesar is. Caesar's the only one who can give them what they want right now. 
God obviously hasn't done away with this false Messiah, so let's see what the world can do. Do you ever in your hearts long for something so much and pray so diligently for it and then at one point just say, you know what, I'm done praying about it and I'm going to see if somebody around here can help me and I don't even really care if it matches up with God's will or word or plan or character. Have you ever been tempted to just dismiss everything that God said so that you could just get what's so valuable to you? That's where the chief priests were. They were willing then to put Jesus on, a, on the cross because of it. And it's important for us to see the chief priest's anti-confession, the crowd's condemnation, because we are there as well, church. Just as surely as you were present in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve made that terrible decision to rebel against God and you participated there, because Paul tells us in Romans that all were in Adam and all died in Adam, we share that guilt Sorry if you don't think that's fair. That's the truth. This is being replayed now with the Jewish people condemning the Son of God. So I want to share with you from a pastor many years ago said this in another sermon. He said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. And only the man or woman who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. That is to say, that either actively like the chief priests or passively like Pilate, we share in the guilt of the cross as well. Either by our choice of sin, whatever it might be, choosing sin over our Savior, hostility over homage. Like Pilate, we will not get away with a partial recognition of who Christ is. We won't be able to just wash our hands of the issue and say, I share no part in this anymore. By choosing sin over our Savior, we condemn ourselves along with those that shout out the condemnation of Christ. Yet the greater condemnation was to come, not from Pilate, not from the priests, not from the soldiers that put Jesus on the tree, but from what happened at the tree. Because you remember in verse 14, it was the preparation of the Passover. Who instituted the Passover in the Exodus? Who was in charge of that? Who gave the instruction? God. God gave it to Moses. Yes, this is true. God gave this instruction. When we see the Passover lamb in verse 14 and we think back to the Passover lamb and the book of Exodus and all of the repetition of this ritual to remind the people of Israel of their salvation from slavery in Egypt, we come now to beholding the man, the king, the lamb of God. And amazingly, the mystery of him becoming this Passover lamb includes that he has the authority to meet our sin with perfect justice and to meet our desperation with satisfaction. That is, that as desperate as the crowds were to see Christ be taken away and nailed to a tree and embarrassingly, humiliatingly crucified through excruciating pain brought to death in the eyes of everyone who would see, that desperation resides in our fallen hearts as well. That desperation to see what we want done so much that we don't care how evil it may seem. Christ has the ability to overcome that. He has the authority that Pilate thought he had. Christ is the one who's in charge here. 
Isaiah 53, 1 through 5 is what we read earlier. That the, the prophecy said in Isaiah mentioned that we considered him smitten by God, stricken and afflicted. Nothing good to look at. How true this was in this moment, and yet they didn't understand. The lamb is the king. He's the one man who can die with such a great authority that it's enough that as true as he becomes the substitute for taking our sin, so true it is that we become the beneficiaries of his righteousness when we receive it by faith. This is all possible as we see in John 10, Jesus' plan. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. He says in verse 15, And then in verse 17, he says, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Remember Pilate's words here. Don't you understand? I have authority to crucify you. I have authority to release you. Jesus says, you have no authority. I have the authority here. What a mystery. He's condemned. He seems to have no power whatsoever, and yet his claim will be vindicated when he conquers death and rises again. The desperation of people then and now, so desperate are our fallen hearts to find satisfaction in sin. We want it so much. And sin doesn't have the authority to grant that. Christ does. So is your trust in the one who who can endure the wrath of a holy God? Is your trust in the one who can justify you for your part in the crucifixion of the holy Son of God? Come behold the wondrous mystery. Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured, love untold. There's a reason we sing these kinds of songs. So what do we do in light of all of this? By the Spirit of God who is in us because of what Christ has done. If we have received Christ's substitution in our place. He sends his spirit to live inside of us and to renew our heart, to move away from shouting crucify when we behold our king to shouting glorify. There's no doubt that any of us that are sitting here right now, if if we were taken back in time and and asked whether we would join in the chanting and the the bloodlusting crowd that wanted so much the Son of God, to be crucified, there's no doubt that any of us would say, oh my goodness, I don't want to take any part in that whatsoever. So crooked as to scorn the very Son of God and bring humiliation and derision upon the one who would come to bring us out of death and doom. We would have all chanted the same thing if we didn't behold the mystery rightly. So we stand, you sit this morning in a place of great responsibility in reading this passage. That you cannot just fade into the background with the rest of the crowds that all just out crucify him. If you see Christ for who he is this morning, it is your responsibility to respond in faith. To move from the crowd chanting crucify to the, the angels, to the heavenly hosts chanting glorify. Chanting holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
In our own hearts, it may look like Pilate, take him yourselves, trying to dismiss Jesus. Or it might be the priests. You might hear that cry of, we have no king but Caesar, as a convicting thing in your own heart. That there are so many times that, that the world is truly the king in your life more than the Son of God. I know at least right now you can't tune out his voice. You must respond. Glorify your king, church. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. In verse 14, John tells us of chapter 1, we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That is what he offers to you today. You may have been following Christ for years. It may have maybe, in fact, in this moment that you might even be thinking, I don't know if I truly know him. Salvation is no less free today than it was 2,000 years ago. Responding by faith, responding in repentance. That is to say that I'm putting my trust not in anything I can do to become right with God, but putting my trust fully in what Christ has done and what he alone has accomplished. And repentance being not a, now I'll live a perfect sinless life, but rather recognizing the temptations of our hearts and walking in such a way as to say, I want to walk in the victory that Christ has had over sin and death. And receive that today. Earlier I asked, how do you respond in beholding Christ in the scriptures? My hope is, is that something out of this passage might grip your soul in such a way that this week, that response might look just a little bit different. I'm trusting the Lord that it will for me. That, that we ought not walk away from this passage and be unchanged. That we ought to see our sin and see our great Savior who has overcome it. So in your time with the Lord, I would encourage you, behold the man, behold your king, and give him homage, give him glory. I have just three things for you here as we finish. First of all, rest your heart in what he has accomplished for you. It is an amazing thing that we might read this passage and think, I am such a terrible, vile sinner. I, I ought to go and do something to make up for my own part in crucifying Christ. No, your part is to rest in what he has done and behold the mystery of God's goodness and patience and kindness to you, though the man was condemned on your behalf. Secondly, I would encourage you to own your share in the guilt of the cross so that you can lay hold of the great grace that accompanies it. We do not believe a gospel that simply wants us to be drugged through the mud and just stay down through there. But that in our humility, when we recognize our sin for what it truly is, the Bible promises that those who humble themselves before God, God will exalt. He will lift them up. Take time to own your share in the guilt of the cross so that then you can lay hold of the great grace that accompanies it. And I say that to you, non-believer, if you don't know Christ, I say it to you, believer, as well. Recall your guilt so that you may receive an even greater portion of his grace day by day. Lastly, it's Christmas time. Remember that this little boy was born to die. He was born to conquer death. He's coming once again. We celebrate at Christmas and we remember when God's people waited for so long for their Messiah. We wait as well. We wait for the same Messiah. But he's not going to come back and pay for our sins yet again. He has offered for once and for all himself as a sacrifice on, that be on our behalf in that regard. He will come again and make all things right. He will come again and every eye will see him. Every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please?
Lord, as we prepare our hearts to sing glorious day, we do long for that day to come. We do long that as, as we look back on that miraculous day, that wondrous mystery of Jesus being born in, in such humble estate, so lowly, not even a crib for him to lay in. We thank you that he will come again in power. He will make all things right. There will not be one, even the tiniest part of our hearts that would say, Lord, how have you not fixed this? How, why did you ignore this? Why didn't you respond in this way? Why didn't you do this when I asked you? We need only look back at the condemnation of our Savior to see that he's taken all of our sin and we're called to follow him. Lord, help us in that mystery to remain faithful. Help us to walk in repentance and faith in a world that is consistently growing in animosity towards us. May you receive all the glory that you are worthy of. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.